Awesome. All right. Well, there's already a bunch of people out there on the intertubes uh, to witness this uh, once in a lifetime. Maybe, maybe, <laughs> maybe it'll happen again next time. There's some uh, amazing announcement, amazing discovery. But I'm joined today by Sean M. Carroll of the California Institute of Technology, which I believe is a small technical college in LA. Is that right? It is. Yeah, it's you know for vocational students who want to learn a trade. <laughs> That's right. Oh, there's no better place to, to learn a trade, I suppose. Let me close up all these windows here. And uh, you're reading me loud and clear, I hope. I can hear you. You sound good. Great. So hopefully people out there are watching. And it is a treat to welcome none other than Sean Carroll, uh, Professor Dr. Sean Carroll of the California Institute of Technology, who has been a great influence on me and many other uh, scientists throughout the years, and one of the things that he is best known for uh, in the outside of scientific communication, as many books, is that he is one of the originators of a modification to none other than the Maxwell's equations of electromagnetism uh, that I find uh, quite, quite intriguing, and it's something that I thought of no one better to speak to than than Sean about this claimed potential evidence for possible discovery of uh, what is known as cosmic birefringence, which would be sort of a mysterious uh, discovery if confirmed. Uh, let me make sure that Sean is being shown. Yes, he is. And here I am, I'm Brian Keating. You know what I look like, uh, but, uh, but it's a pleasure to bring you this live today stream. And there's a lot of people in the chat room already asking questions. I encourage you to ask questions in the chat and we'll try to get to them. Uh, and Sean is joining us from his laboratory. You know, when I came to visit you last time, you only had Richard Feynman's desk. How'd you get this resplendent laboratory, Sean? You thought I was a theorist, but <laughs> no, no, no. This is, uh, you know, I have my secret experiments. I don't want to tell anyone any of the details. You know, the world isn't quite ready for them yet. <laughs> well, it's another talent that Sean has that uh, only now are we privy to. So, Sean, I put together some slides, uh, which people can access if they go to my website under blog. So I'll put that in the chat room right now. People can go there and get um, a show notes. Just look for the Sean Carroll episode uh, that is listed there. I run uh, a website which features uh, links to many interviews, including ones like this, which you can find. I'll put this also in the chat room on the uh on the actual internet on the actual youtube video make that a public comment uh so here in the chat you'll find the link to the powerpoint under i believe it's under um bullet point number seven i'll give people a chance to do that but i'm going to be sharing the screen so you don't necessarily even need the powerpoint to follow along but I thought it would be fun for us to talk over something while we're uh, discussing this monumental discovery, potential discovery, I should say. And we'll couch that in the appropriate gravitas as we go on. So here is a, uh, as a slide. I'm going to start off with a history behind this, how I came to uh, set this meeting up with Sean. And that was because I saw an abstract for a paper entitled uh, Limits on uh, New Extraction of Cosmic Birefringence from the Planck 2018 polarization data. Now this may not sound as uh, stupendously Im important and, and full of uh, intrigue as both Sean and I found it, uh, but the key sentence is shown here where it says that this beta, which we'll talk about what that means, is a number, is an angle, uh, that they, uh, that the authors, uh, Miyamuri and uh, 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 Ichiro Komatsu, this, uh, discovered had a value which is inconsistent with zero. So it says beta equals zero is excluded at 99.2% confidence limit. That's what CL stands for. So they've increased the precision uh, on this and they've improved the accuracy too. And maybe we'll talk about the distinction between those two. Now today, if you go to this link, you can download the PowerPoint. The links are all clickable. If you click on this link, you'll find uh, 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 abstract not found. Uh, which is kind of uh, kind of unusual for such a thing to happen. I'm not sure what it means or why that took why that did take place, but uh, but nevertheless, it is no longer available. So you'll have to take my word for it. I can actually I do have a screenshot of the original abstract, which is saved for posterity. I can uh, share that later on if people are interested. Uh, but really, this made me want to talk to Sean because it is the anniversary of something very important to us. So on the third slide. 
I've got a picture that shows uh, Galileo on the left and also wishing a happy 30th birthday to uh, to Carol Field and Jakiv. I think that's how you say it, right, Sean? Jakiv? Mm-hmm. And this is on a paper that Sean wrote uh, while he was at the Harvard Smithsonian Center for Astrophysics. Is that that's where you got your PhD, right? You were That's right. This was my first ever refereed publication. And it is enjoying its 30th anniversary and not only that, it is enjoying a a bountiful harvest of the currency in which scientists like Sean and myself traffic, which is citations. How many citations does this now have? You you received over a thousand. I don't know exactly how many it has as of today. I really have no idea, but it is over a thousand. I only know it's over a thousand because um, Inspire tweets out when a paper gets over a thousand citations. So uh, I, I hadn't been keeping track until then. I think behind you, I don't know if that's true because behind you in the I see a, a hit counter, a citation counter in the laboratory. <laughs> it's real time updating. Wow, that's amazing. Uh, good. I got to get one of those for my you know hundred sure. citations that I have. Um, so getting back to the paper, the interesting thing that that. To me, I can't notice the date uh, without thinking about Galileo, because you published this on Galileo's 426th anniversary, and that's very fitting, because Galileo was one of the first people to talk about the concept of relativity. I believe he might have been the first, right, Sean? Uh, we certainly attribute it to him. I'm always a little careful when we talk about historical things, because my knowledge of history is not exactly very good, and, and physicists certainly don't worry too much about getting the history right sometimes. <laughs> That's right. But uh, as you encouraged me when I was writing uh, my book, Losing the Nobel Prize, we'll get a picture of that, de rigueur. So I've, I've arrayed here. You can't see this, Sean, but on, on my couch in my office, I have four books that you've provided your encomium for, including my book, Losing the Nobel Prize. Uh, Leonard Mladenow's, your colleague up at Caltech, Stephen Hawking's memoir of, of, of uh, friendship and physics, and the Cosmic Revolutionary's Handbook. Uh, these are yeah. books that I'm reading for uh, upcoming podcasts. So uh, Sean is prolific at writing his own books, writing scientific papers, and also writing blurbs, uh, which is just, uh, he's a quadruple threat or triple threat, whatever we got <laughs> up to. But getting back to this paper, <clears throat> when this paper came out, uh, it's kind of been a slow boil. I, I actually do have a list of kind of uh, how often these things have been cited. But I want to take us through the title. So it's not as um, attractive a title as Something Deeply Hidden or The Big Picture. Uh, how'd you come up with the title? I always judge papers first and foremost by their title and their abstract. Like I said, you know, this is my first ever published uh, referee publication. So I was not the intellectual leader, really of this effort. I did a lot of the, uh, you know, graduate student grunt work and I, I did my best to provide the ideas that I could. It, uh, the title might have been mine. Like I, I do often uh, uh, become the person who ends up with the titles. But, you know, this this paper itself, uh, there's a long version and a short version. I'll tell you the short version of how this paper came to be because I was a new grad student at Harvard in the astronomy department. I'm not an astronomer. No one thinks I'm an astronomer. <laughs> like, what was I doing in the astronomy department? Well, the answer is the physics department didn't let me in, and the astronomy department did. And so George Field was randomly assigned to me as an advisor, and George was a world-famous theorist of the interstellar and intergalactic medium, so something I have literally no interest in at all. But he had sort of spent a lot, long time as the founding director of the Harvard-Smithsonian Center for Astrophysics, and then he uh, left that position and sort of was intellectually curious, looking for new things to do. So he got into particle physics and field theory. And he actually attended a summer school as a student, you know, at age 60 something. You know, he attended as a as a young particle physicist and Roman Jakiv was there giving lectures. And Roman at the time was very interested in electromagnetism in three dimensions. That's three dimensions of space, right? Two dimensions of space sorry, three dimensions of space-time, so two dimensions of space, one dimension of time. And he gave these lectures on them, and that, that is the context in which this idea of Chern-Simons theory arises, uh, named in part after our buddy, uh, Jim Simons. And George, bless his heart, you know, as the down-to-earth astrophysicist, he's like, well, okay, but what about four-dimensional space-time? Like, what about where we live? Like, we don't live in three-dimensional space-time. What is the point of all that? And Roman was like, well, you can't, you can't do it in four-dimensional space-time. It would violate Lorentz invariance. So George's answer was, you know, okay, let's do that. <laughs> and that's when they brought me in and we looked for, you know, if we were to do this. 
And the reason why this paper has so many citations is because at the time, in 1989-1990, the idea of violating Lorentz invariance was just anathema. Like, we knew that Lorentz invariance was right, uh, so what's the point? But that's not a very scientific attitude. You know, a good scientist will say, well, if it's not right, how would we know? <laughs> and this particular idea that we came up with was sort of the easiest and best way for Lorentz invariance to be wrong. There's some vector field that picks out a preferred reference frame in space-time, and it's gauge invariant, but it's also detectable experimentally. And so that's what we said. You know, we said, look, if Lorentz invariants were not true, here's a benign, innocent way to violate it, and here's how you would look for it. Here are the experimental tests you can do. Mm. And so what, let's take us through it, maybe take a step back. What does it mean to be gauge invariant? What does it mean to be Lorentz invariant? What do those terms mean uh, for those of us who may not be as expertly conversant as you? No, exactly. So modern physics uh, relies very heavily on the idea of symmetries, right? And a symmetry sounds like a big, sophisticated mathematical concept. All it means is there's something you can do, some transformation you can make, some change of perspective, that doesn't change the underlying physical phenomena. So the most obvious thing is if I measure, you know, the strength of gravity right here, and I walk over 10 paces to the left, I measure the strength of gravity, I'm going to get the same number, right? If I measure the charge of the electron, it's going to be the same number. So that's invariance under translations through space. It doesn't matter where you do your experiment, and that's an example of a symmetry. Gauge invariance is another example of a symmetry that is specific to electromagnetism. It later got promoted to other nuclear forces, the strong nuclear force, the weak nuclear force, even gravity has a kind of gauge invariance. And it's more subtle than spatial translations because it's completely internal symmetry. It doesn't move you through space it just takes the fields in your theory, the electromagnetic field, the electron, the proton, whatever, and changes them amongst themselves in a certain way. And it sounds all, like I said, very abstract and mathy, but it's absolutely at the heart of modern physics. All of these different symmetries highly constrain what you can do in terms of the laws of physics, what theories you can write down, what experiments you can do. So if anything, gauge invariance, which is at the heart of electromagnetism and so forth, is more sacred than Lorentz invariance. Lorentz invariance is, like you said, an outgrowth, sort of uh, leveling up of Galileo's idea. Galileo said, doesn't matter where you are, and also it doesn't matter how fast you're moving, right? If you're on a train and doing an experiment, you're gonna get the same answer. Lorentz invariance is just the relativity version of that. You know, Einstein and Lorentz and Fitzgerald and Poincaré, people like that 100 and some years ago said, it, it doesn't matter where you are, and it doesn't matter how fast you're moving, but the way in which it matters is more complicated than you thought. So that's Lorentz invariance. And when we speak about Lagrangian, I don't want to get too detailed, but uh, when we talk about Lagrangians, that's sort of the the underlying generator of all things of interest to physicists, is it not? That's right. When what the, the What you do as a working theoretical physicist these days is you either invent or find the predictions of different theories, right? Usually different quantum field theories, but maybe string theory or maybe some discrete theory, maybe different kinds of theories. So what does that mean you have a theory? Well, it means you have some stuff, some fields, some particles, whatever, and you also have some equations of motion. You have some uh, mathematical way of talking about how that stuff changes over time. And that's what the Lagrangian gives you. Lagrangian is just a slick mathematical tool for generating the equations of motion for your stuff. So you say, when you propose a theory, here's the stuff, here's the Lagrangian. Any first-year graduate student can now go ahead and get all the equations of motion. Uh, I say that because I was a first-year graduate student when I did that with, you know, with these equations. But it's, that's, that's the everyday life of a theoretical physicist these days, writing down Lagrangians and coming up with their consequences. And was George, did he end up being your PhD advisor? He did, yes. Okay. I worked also with people from MIT, uh, Alan Guth and Eddie Fari, but George and I wrote several papers together. We are still collaborating today, 30 years later. Wow. So many people uh, talk to, uh, think that uh, uh, S.S. Churn was Jim Simon's PhD advisor, but they, they actually, uh, if they had been, if it had been the case, it wasn't, uh, Jim Simons had a different advisor at Berkeley. He came to Berkeley to work with Chern as a graduate student, but when he showed up, he found out Chern was on sabbatical for a year and he had a different advisor. 
But as we talked about in my podcast with him a few months ago with Jim Simons, he said basically if if he had shown up, he might not have ever created Churn Simons theory because he would have been just this rube of a grad student. And by the time he was actually working as almost a postdoc uh, uh, after only two or three years in graduate school, uh, getting his Ph.D., he had the imprimatur of great success and great uh, and great ability in mathematics that he wouldn't have had as a, as a first year newbie graduate student. Right. So we all, we, we can never live up to our graduates, uh, uh graduate <laughs> advisors expectations, but yeah, go ahead. Something I can mention is, you know, this idea of churn Simon's theory was what we called it at the time. Uh, obviously churn and Simon's were pure mathematicians. They were doing topology. They were coming up with different complicated to we mere mortals ways of characterizing, two- and three-dimensional topologies. And so Roman Chakiv, who thinks of himself as a mathematical physicist, you know, he was one of the people who really, starting in the 1970s, uh, realized that you, know, you could make physical systems that are, in effect, two-dimensional, right? Sheets of paper or you know, sheets of conductors or something like that. So, and, and he knew enough about the math to know that there were things that could happen in two-dimensional space that just can't happen in three-dimensional space. So he borrowed this math idea from Chern and Simons into a physics idea. And then George and I and Roman turned it into a three-plus-one-dimensional physics idea. But by there, by, by the time you get there, it's pretty far removed from what Chern and Simons actually did. And one of the questions I got at my PhD thesis defense was, do you think if you showed this to Jim Simons, he would uh, he would recognize anything that you've done? Yeah. And at the time, I had to say, well, honestly, I don't know. I'm not I'm not completely sure. But now I know he would recognize it because of you. Yeah. <laughs> well, that's true. And he always is asking me, you know, how's how's my uh, how's my Nobel Prize uh, prospects looking? And we'll we'll talk exactly. about that because. That of course uh, drives some of the some of the excitement, not the Nobel Prize, but but the stakes that are involved. And another person I'm showing now on uh, the fourth slide, I think it is, is James Clerk Maxwell. Now I wonder, you know, if if old James were alive and able to uh, comprehend what he's seeing here, would he really understand? The first set of equations lays this out really beautifully. You talk about gauge and Lorentz invariance are two symmetries of Maxwell's electrodynamics that have come to dominate all fundamental physical theory. And I wonder if he would have recognized that. I mean, as far as I know, he still had sort of, and again, sorry, apologies for getting back into history, but I, I can't resist these, these great scientists um, uh, that we're talking about. You, you get into these different extensions of electromagnetism, but at its heart, it's really modifying this master equation, this Lagrangian, your equation five, by the addition of this term. And the term has a very special force. Now, did this equation six, where you add this four vector, did that just come to you out of the blue? I mean, what inspires you to, or, or your colleagues, you and your colleagues, to create such a thing that had never before been considered? Well, again, yeah. So you, you want to start with some idea that in this case came from pure math, came from Chern, Chern and Simons. And they figured out a way to, they, they figured out what we now call a topological invariant of three manifolds. So what that means is you have some complicated mathematical thing which is three-dimensional so locally it has three dimensions there's an up down left right forward backward but maybe it can wrap around itself like there are donut holes and you know boundaries or whatever and the ongoing program of mathematical topologists is to say how do you know if two mathematical shapes are the same if you can deform them into each other and there's no algorithm for answering that question right so what you can do instead is say well here are two things I can calculate about these different spaces that would be the same if they were deformable into each other. So like the dimensionality of a space is a topological invariant, okay? And, and I encourage people to check out, uh, I did a series of videos, The Biggest Ideas in the Universe, and I do a whole video on geometry and topology where I talk about this stuff. Um, but anyway, it's, their topological invariant was specific to three dimensions. It's not meant, in fact, odd-numbered dimensions more, more generally. It's, it's not meant to work in four dimensions. So our equation six, no one else had ever written down before, uh, even Chern and Simons. This was our four-dimensional version of what something like a Chern-Simons term would look like. And the important thing about it, if, even if you don't know anything about Lagrangians or physics at all, if you zoom in and see the very first thing that appears there, after the minus one-half, there's a P-alpha. 
and that P alpha represents a vector in space-time that picks out a preferred direction. That's why it violates Lorentz invariance. Because Lorentz invariance says there are no preferred directions in space, there are no preferred velocities, etc. This picks out a preferred direction. And that direction is the time axis, correct? Or the axis we, connecting? We assumed it, it was, but you don't have to assume that. We, we made our lives easy. The paper was long enough and, and speculative enough as it was. <laughs> What's so interesting about this paper is that you actually not only propose a new modification to one of the most, if not the most, sacrosanct uh, fundamental theories of nature, namely uh, Maxwellian electrodynamics, uh, but you also subject it to test, observational tests, and we're going to get into that because obviously the subject today is the claimed um, extraction of this very effect, uh, reproducing a type of a special rotation uh, in the cosmic microwave background polarization axis, linear polarization axis, that I want to discuss. Uh, but <clears throat> but you you know the thing that really speaks to me is that you included not only some the speculative theory, but also the potentiality for testing it with existing data that you had access to at that time. So. The um, I want to just get briefly into why these types of, of uh, measurements are hard to do and actually how we experimental, uh, simple experimentalists go about trying to measure these things and why. Of course, one of the main goals in cosmology is to uh, detect perhaps the imprint of primordial gravitational waves produced by an expansionary period that we call inflation. Uh, and you've worked on this as well, and you've worked on an allied subject related to uh, dark energy and accelerating universe. Uh, but I wonder, you know, if we if we comment on here, I'm showing a slide uh, that I borrowed from Professor Matt Muse uh, and um, uh, and the Cal Cal State system. He has this beautiful diagram with kind of these blocks that my kids love to put together. Well, one likes to put it together, and the other one breaks it, so it's kind of the symbiotic relationship. But he he's declaring here there's a theory of everything that uh, underpins all of reality and it is supporting bricks that are labeled quantum mechanics, Lorentz symmetry, and curved space-time. Those then feed into the standard model of particle physics and general relativity and then those support Newton's laws, classical dynamics, electromagnetism, atoms, cosmolo classical cosmology, Newtonian gravity, but his point is that if you perturb the system on the next slide you get something really wacky that if you break Lorentz symmetry, you actually will have repercussions downstream. Namely, you'll be able to see effects in the atomic world in electromagnetism, cosmology, and gravity. Uh, so the first thing I wanna uh, get into that some are asking in the chat room, what is your feeling about a theory of everything? It, does such a thing have to exist? I, I, I've, I've wondered often, I've never asked you this. I had a, a series of webinars over the summer with uh, eminent physicists Lee Smolin, Sabine Hassenfelder, Eric Weinstein, Max Tegmark, uh, <clears throat> Lisa Randall, uh, and, and others. Um, do you think there's a need, do we need a theory of everything, Sean? Well, there is a theory of everything. The universe does something. <laughs> Whatever the universe is doing, that's the theory of everything. The question is, can we human beings find a version of that theory of everything that we can understand and that covers all the bases? Uh, I think probably, but I don't know. We'll have to find out. So one, one argument, you know, I haven't used this on you uh, because we haven't spoken since December when we were actually in person in the uh, travel district of Los Angeles International Airport. Uh, that was that? that was great. Um, and yeah, we did a conversation on uh, on something deeply hidden. That was wonderful. You can find a link to it in my uh, back catalog. And we also have links to your YouTube channel as well and to your books. But uh, one of the things I've been asking lately is, in what sense do we need, we talk about unifying gravity with quantum mechanics, but there's no, well, you don't believe in God, but there's no letter from, you know, some deity that says gravity and quantum mechanics have to be unified. And then I always hear, well, at the center of a black hole or at the Big Bang, there was a singularity and you can't have a singularity without, you can't understand a singularity without a quantum theory of gravity. What if there are no singularities, first of all? Would we, would you still say we need a theory of quantum gravity? I mean, of course we need a theory of quantum gravity. It has nothing to do with singularities or black holes. The, our current theory of gravity says if you have some energy or mass right here, it gives rise to a gravitational field of the following form. Quantum mechanics says I can take that energy or mass and put it in a superposition of being here and being there. Okay, so 
that superposition causes some kind of gravitational field. What kind of gravitational field does it cause? We need a theory of quantum gravity to answer that. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> and some are asking you to do something very dangerous. Uh, Dallas here, I'll put up his comment. Uh, he's asking you to comment on the theories of everything of, uh, of uh, past guests on the show, including uh, Stephen Wolfram, uh, Eric Weinstein, and uh, Max Tegmark. Uh, would, you, would you take that challenge? Could you comment on why is there this pro proliferation? Of it, but I don't really agree with. Uh, I encourage people to check out my podcast conversation with him on the Mindscape podcast. You know, uh, it's good to be ambitious, but it's better to be right. So most ambitious ideas, including even observational tests like we're going to talk about later, are going to be wrong. You've got to be able to deal with that. Yeah. Uh, so I have a guest uh, coming up in a few weeks, Nima Arkani Hamed of the Institute for Advanced Studies. And he's famous for saying things like, you know, it's very hard to break the standard model. I mean, it's very hard to do what I'm depicting here, or Matt Muse is depicting here. Uh, but let's talk about that uh, more. So um, first of all, Lorentz invariance, I'm just summarizing what you said earlier, uh, <clears throat> the symmetry under various translations, rotations, and boosts. It's implicitly assumed within special relativity and GR. It's, it's basically a foundational aspect component of, of the standard model uh, of, of, of uh, particle physics and beyond. And so therefore breaking it would be quite revolutionary. Another thing that, that um, Carol Jackie field uh, effect would manifest is in parity violation. Can you comment on what is parity violation who cares if it's uh, violated? Uh, can't we can't we all just get along with uh, two hands that don't fit in the same glove? Well, parity is violated in particle physics, so it's not that surprising. Um, and by the way, let me mention that even though Lorentz invariance is absolutely a pillar of modern physics, um, one of the reasons why our paper was popular is because we violate it in a very benign, innocent way. We violate it in a way that doesn't make everything else break. It's still local quantum field theory. You know, it's still obeying the <coughs> rules that we're all set up with. It just picks out a preferred reference frame in the universe, which is certainly interesting, but it's not like we have to start from scratch with quantum mechanics and space-time and all of that. Um, parity is a particular subset, in some sense, of Lorentz invariance, which says you can take a system that has some shape, right, some orientation, and you flip its orientation. So if you have a set of vectors that are perpendicular to each other, you can sort of flip them so the other way around. I can't do it with my hand. Like, you know, I go left hand, there you go. It's, like, it's the difference between this and this, okay? Left-handed and right-handed, that is the actual difference. Sometimes people say it's as if you hold a mirror up to something. And if you think about particle physics, right? If you think about two particles bumping into each other and interacting and going off their own way, it's the most natural thing in the world to think that if you have an interaction that happens with a certain probability because of the rules of quantum mechanics, and all you do is ask about the same interaction but in a mirror, it should have the same probability. It should be completely invariant under that, right? And so it was big Nobel Prize winning stuff when in the 19, I think it was the 1960s, they showed that no, actually parity is not an exact symmetry of nature. The weak interactions of particle physics violate parity gravity and the strong interactions and electromagnetism all satisfy parity, but the weak interactions violate it. Isn't it possible, though, that gravity could violate it in the sense that you added a term to the Einstein tensor that's not unlike your term, uh, that you would get chiral gravitational waves that would, in theory, or we could never test it maybe, but uh, but some, including uh, Lee Smolin, Stefan Alexander, etc., have thought about if there is a theory of everything, all the forces are unified, gravity has to, at some point in the history of the universe, have chirality of parity violation. What do you make of such uh, conjectures like that? So you said two things. Uh, one thing is, isn't it possible that? And the answer is always yes. Any respectable physicist will always say, yes, it's possible. <laughs> we don't know what the fundamental theory of everything is, like you said, so sure, it's possible. But then you said, you know, doesn't it have to be that gravity violates Chirality River? No, it doesn't have to be sure. like that. This is where we should be humble. We just don't know. That's why this kind of exploration is important, because we don't know ahead of time how these things work. We should hypothesize that maybe they work and then go look for their experimental effects. So let's do a counterfactual Gedanken experiment <clears throat> to throw a lot of Scrabble words in there. Um, so imagine that the weak 
uh, nuclear force did obey parity. And just somebody told you that in 1989, you know, right? You're a bushy-eyed, bright-eyed uh, graduate student. There's no parity violation in nature at all, Sean. Uh, would you still write this paper? In other words, doesn't does not the existence of parity violation in the in the weak sector suggest that there could, as again possible, arise a violation in electro weak or in electromagnetism solo? Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, physicists are people too, and when you think about different hypothetical scenarios that we haven't tested yet. Uh, different people are going to give different credences to them. Some ideas they're gonna think are very reasonable, very probable, this is a good thing, let's go look for it. Other ideas, even though they're also speculative and we're not sure yet, they're gonna say, I'm not even gonna bother looking for that. So there's no question that you know we discovered both that parity was violated, uh, and then we discovered the time reversal symmetry was violated, another Nobel Prize winning effort. Uh, so by now we're used to these symmetries breaking just a little bit. And you know, like I said, uh, Lorentz invariance and these sort of orientation flipping symmetries are not even as fundamental as gauge invariance is. So maybe we shouldn't be surprised if these symmetries are, are broken at a fundamental level. I mean, I, I'm absolutely a big believer that quantum gravity might very well give rise to violations of Lorentz invariance. Other people have investigated this idea. Um, but it's one of the very, very few handles experimentally that we might have on quantum gravity, so we should take that super duper seriously. And then of the three discrete, there are three discrete symmetries in which you can invert uh, a parameter, a binary parameter, plus and minus, and charge and, and parity left to right, and then in time. Uh, is there an analog of this Carroll effect, uh, et cetera, in terms of time reversal symmetry being violated as the sub as a subclass of Lorentz uh, invariance violation. Well, like you say, there are these three symmetries. There's parity, which is the mirror, time reversal, forward and backward in time, and there's charge conjugation, which basically takes matter and antimatter and uh, flips them into each other. So we've detected violations of P and C and CP and T, and you know, all these different things, but the combination CPT, where you take a, an experiment, hold up at the mirror, run it backward in time, and flip all the particles to antiparticles, that seems to be like a good symmetry of nature. In fact, there's a theorem, the CPT theorem, which says that under very general assumptions, CPT has to be a symmetry of nature. True confession time, we didn't even realize when we wrote this paper in 1990 that our theory violates CPT, <laughs> which it does, and the reason so, you know, once you, this is an example of the diagrams you showed. Once you break something a little bit, there are downstream effects of other people, other things breaking that depended on what you started with. Mm. Uh, so, uh, Mark uh, Gihaldia, I think I'm mangling that name, max to maximum extent, uh, he or she is asking, uh, wouldn't the many worlds uh, interpretation be a theory of everything? It's a different kind of thing because we have a technical definition of what we mean by a theory of everything. It's not, a theory of everything is not just a theory of the whole universe. It's a complete theory of the whole universe at the fundamental microscopic level. So something like the many worlds formulation of quantum mechanics is a paradigm. It's a way of saying this is how quantum mechanics works. But it's not a specific theory, right? Uh, quantum electromagnetism, the standard model of particle physics, you know, a qubit in a, in a quantum computer or something like that. These are specific physical models. All of them can be described within the many worlds interpretation of quantum mechanics. When physicists say that we're looking for a theory of everything, we want the specific model that describes the actual world down deep into its bones, and maybe or maybe not, that'll be part of the many worlds interpretation of quantum mechanics. Mm. So I want to turn back to our slides now. There's a picture of Jim Simons for those of you playing at home. Let me get that up here. Uh, so this is uh, the term that you added that we spoke about earlier. So you've already nicely described how that is added. I want to point out that this is not the first time that such a claim has been made, even in the context of CMB results. We're going to talk about an earlier violation detection claim in the late 1990s, which got me extremely excited as a graduate student, uh, that you actually played a role in debunking. And I want to get to 
why I believe that shows almost a heroic level of scientific integrity. Uh, I've spoken on Eric Weinstein's podcast about you specifically il being illustrative of the way a good scientist works his or her best to, av uh, to avoid confirmation bias and how some of the great scientists in history from Galileo to Einstein fell victim to it. So I uh, always say it's too bad they could have had good careers. But, um, <laughs> but I want to take us back to August 2009 when uh, a claim was made of a three sigma detection of CPT violation using a churn Simons like violation, the exact same term that you included in 1990. So uh, this was by uh, Jia uh, Li and Zhang. Uh, they're all friends of mine. And they were basically analyzing data from the BICEP, WMAP, and, uh, and Boomerang uh, CMBX polarimeters and using those data to construct a very high conf or relatively high confidence, uh, several sigma detection, three sigma, which is higher than the current uh, paper under discussion that we're talking about. Uh, and as I always joke, one of my late colleagues used to say, you know, at three sigma, you can come and give a seminar, you know, uh, at five sigma, you know, they'll, they'll pay for the seminar. And at, you know, seven sigma, you can go to Stockholm. Uh, but, you know, sometimes those go away too, by the way. But, uh, but looking at this paper, this really set me off on a, on a campaign with one of my graduate students, John Kaufman, uh, who is now a uh, PhD out in uh, Boston area. And we started looking at uh, cosmic birefringence of the Carroll variety and how it be manifest. So the next slide shows cosmic birefringence with basically what does it mean to exhibit this effect? Assume nature has this added term in electromagnetic Lagrangian. You add a turn Simon's term. It would mean that the vacuum is birefringent. It would mean that a photon of the left circular polarization state would travel slower or faster depending on the sign of this effect and the coupling. It would travel slower or faster such that when traversing cosmic distances, the, a rotation would accrue and a measurable rotation. The signature of polarization, and this is how your polarized sunglasses work, is that for every one physical rotation of the polarizer, my uh, face will get darker and brighter. For some, this is great fun when I'm fully extinguished. It'll get uh, uh, extinguished twice per physical rotation. And uh, this is relying on the fact that when you extinguish one, when you select one polarization state and then you uh, measure an orthogonal state, you have zero photons transmitted. And so what we do with our CMB polarimeters is we build detectors that are intrinsically sensitive to one polarization state or the other. And we essentially do this modulation where we rotate the polarizers with respect to one another in order to see if the incoming light is polarized and if so, how. Now, what the universe would exhibit uh, if there were such a, a CP, you know, this Lorentz and parity violating property is that an initially polarized vertical photon would rotate and become slightly horizontal or rotated with respect to its original uh, orientation state. That's how you would detect it. And it was claimed, as I said, back in, uh, in 2009, based on BICEP1 data, so the original BICEP data, uh, half the subject of my book uh, uh, revolves around BICEP1, the other half sort of BICEP2, and, uh, and why the stakes are so high when we do polarimetry. And now I'm, I'm showing a cover of the New York Times. This is from uh, April uh, 18th, 1997, and I'll show it on the screen here. Here we go. And it's a cover, and it shows uh, what I always think is interesting is that the New York Times is tra time translation invariant as well. So some of the same people that were on the headlines in 1997, uh, including uh, Newt Gingrich up here and uh, Benjamin Netanyahu over here, they're still in the news. Uh, and Pataki, you sometimes hear about him. Uh, anyway, it's, it's interesting. But that's not what I want to draw your attention to. Down here, it's a, it's a subhead. It's on the front page of the New York Times. It says, this side up may apply to the universe after all. So I know that I remember where I was when I first saw this uh, paper. And uh, I want to get Sean to take us back to 1997. There's essentially a claim made using the properties of radio galaxies, which are distant astronomical objects known to have certain polarization properties. You are um, a freshly minted PhD, or you're a postdoc, or maybe you're a professor at Chicago. At ITP. Yeah, so you're at the ITP, um, and you are coming across this this paper, which basically seems to have detected the very effect that you. Now they don't cite your paper in the book and the uh, in the New York Times, but it's effectively a detection of what you predicted. How did you feel 
as a person. Tell me what that felt like, that satisfaction that you might have had, must have had. Tell us what it felt like, and then as a physicist, and what happened next. So this is, um, you know, part of what I did, that original 1990 paper was, what we were doing was looking at radio galaxies. So radio galaxies often have these long, elongated jets, right? There's a black hole at the center spewing off matter in some direction. And what happens is if the matter gets spewed off, it stretches magnetic fields along with it. And so these magnetic fields, you know where they're aligned. They're aligned along the jet. That's, you can test this experimentally, but it's, it's the most obvious guess also. And what that means is that electrons swirl around perpendicular to the magnetic field. They give off radiation that radio telescopes can detect. So if you know what a radio galaxy is and does, you predict with very, very high confidence that the polarization of light from the radio galaxy will be perpendicular to the jet, because that's what the electrons are doing. They're moving around perpendicular to where the jet is. And so what, what George basically realized, George Field, was that you know if you collected a bunch of radio galaxies with redshifts and polarizations, and you and you what we call the position angle, the where exactly the jet was on the sky. Uh, an eager young graduate student could type all that in. This, by the way, was the days when you had to like photocopy papers and then type in the data. Okay, so that was me. Uh, and then make plots of whether or not it was true that in fact the polarization was perpendicular to the jet. And if we had this birefringence effect, it would all be rotated a little bit, and it would be rotated more the further apart, the further away from us you were. So we looked for that, and we found no, there was no observable effect. We put an upper limit. There was not very much rotation, if any, in the polarization. And then, yes, yeah, seven years later, the front page of the New York Times says someone has discovered it. Look, to be honest, my immediate response was, that's wrong. There was no time, I did not get any moment of satisfaction uh, where I said, oh my goodness, they found something. And I'll tell you the reason why. It's because in the New York Times article, they mentioned that the researchers used 160 radio galaxies. And I remembered, I typed in 160 radio galaxies. So they weren't using different data or better data than me. They were using the data that I had typed in. I didn't collect any of it. That was collected by real astronomers, not me. <laughs> But I knew that our data didn't have any observable effect in it, so I knew that they were wrong. And I'll, I'll tell you why they're wrong. And it, I feel like you know, dancing on the grave a little bit because they were so wrong. It's kind of it's kind of funny almost. For some reason, they thought that the polarization of the of the radiation should be parallel to the radio galaxy, not perpendicular to it. And so the problem with that is, of course, polarization is only defined plus or minus 180 degrees, because the electric field goes up and down. Right. So it's not like it's defined this way or that way. Right. right. 180 degrees gives you the same answer, right? Right. So what, how do you know if, if what the polarization is? You have to resolve it somehow. And what they did was they said, well, in one half of the sky, we'll assume the angles between 0 and 180. And in the other half of the sky, we'll assume it's between 0 and minus 180. Now, you and I know that it's actually 90 all the time. So what they found was that in one half of the sky, it was rotated by 90 degrees, and the other half of the sky was rotated the other way by 90 degrees. But that's the same rotation. It's not any different. So they just made a conceptual error. It was not like they made a, a, an analysis mistake or anything like that. So George and I, actually, George emailed me. He said, like, you should look at the New York Times. And I said, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and then he emailed me again. He said, no, 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 you really, really should look at it. And I did. And literally over the weekend, uh, you know, we wrote a paper saying, here's why it's wrong. Yeah. Well, you have a lot more uh, control, self-control stoicism than, than I do. <clears throat> yeah, I always thought when you, after you explained it, so I'm showing your paper from 1997 with the histogram distribution under the slide that says radio galaxy polarization. It was kind of like, you know, Remember when you used to play chicken in high school, Sean, and you'd say, like, you go right and I'll go left? You know, that usually doesn't work out so well. So anybody who plays chicken, make sure not to heed uh, that particular convention. Um, but again, since uh, this is one of my undergraduates, Kelsey Lund, put this slide together, the next, uh, the next uh, view graph has a uh, display of, <clears throat> of the number of publications uh, mentioning cosmic birefringence 
It starts with a lonely peak at 1990, and that's Sean's uh, famous paper, and then it builds as a slow, you know, I wish my stock portfolio looked like this. And it's really just gone up almost exponentially. And the reason is, I think the stakes in some sense couldn't be higher. I was joking, you know, earlier, if, if God, in my case, gave me a piece of paper and said, on this piece of paper, write down which do you want to detect, primordial B modes from inflation or Lorentz invariant cosmic biorefringence and Chern Simons uh, type, I would definitely choose the latter because I think many people assume that the former took place and it's almost a foregone conclusion that something like inflation, if not inflation itself, took place. I so, mean, I don't want to, I don't know how much you want to get into yeah. it, but um, part of this resurgence was many of the astronomy buffs out there will recognize 1997 as the year before 1998. And in 1998, uh, people discovered that the universe is accelerating due to something which we call dark energy. And, you know, sometimes good things come out of mistakes. And so even though I think that the Nodlin and Ralston paper was a mistake, it got me thinking, again, about cosmic virefringence and things like that. And in 1998, I realized that rather than violating Lorentz invariance with some vector that we just made up, you could ask, you know, is there an effect that dark energy could have on the polarization of uh, background photons? And it's the same effect. And so I wrote a paper explaining that if dark energy exists and is dynamical, is quintessence, you should expect to see some cosmological birefringence. And to my mind, that's a way better motivation than violating the Renzen variant. Yeah, I think that's uh, your quintessence in the rest of the world paper. Is that is that it? Right. Yeah. So um, moving on, there were many other detections that have come about since the um, <clears throat> measurements of non-zero rotation angle. But most of those we attribute in this paper with John Kaufman uh, that I've linked here. Uh, this is basically the misapplication of the way that systematic errors propagate from experiment to experiment. And really the lack there, uh, thereof of, of an astronomical reference source for astronomical calibration of polarization angle. The reason it's so hard, and you and I have talked about this before, uh, um, a rotation of your detector by a minuscule amount can introduce the same type of effect that would masquerade as a real rotation of the CMB photon's uh, polarization state, leading you to misattribute a detection of cosmic birefringence. And so we, we work to great uh, lengths to reduce this uh, type of systematic error. The problem is the way to reduce a systematic error, this is for the real cognizante, the biofringence and systematics, um, you can skip over that, <clears throat> but that a small rotation of your axis can be detrimental and it can be much larger and induce a signal far, far larger than the cosmic signals that are sought. And so we started thinking about, well, how could you uh, calibrate your instrument's polarization angle? And it turns out, Whereas for most uh, astronomical sources, even in the CMB measurement, what the Planck instrument did for, for its temperature calibration or the WMAP uh, satellites beach ball behind me, is that they use, say, Jupiter. And Jupiter is a known black body. It has a known size and a distance to the Earth, et cetera. And therefore, it's a very reliable, absolute temperature calibration standard. But there is no what I call standard stick. There's no object that we know exactly what its orientation is. And so uh, we cannot absolutely calibrate our polarization angles using this, uh, with the CMB uh, as easily as we can calibrate the temperature response. So we go to great lengths to do this, and some of the different ways are shown here. But again, none of these are as standard a candle as is the uh, measurement of CMB temperature anisotropy. So it's a great challenge to us, but again, the stakes are quite high. We've actually gone so far as to propose uh, building a satellite. A, Cal a Brad Johnson at the University of Virginia has proposed a satellite that would orbit the Earth, not looking out at the CMB, but looking down at the Earth. Uh, spraying it with a conversation with a calibration signal that we would use to measure our polarization angles against. Uh, <clears throat> so before we turn back to the paper and and maybe just uh, finish up with the most recent Planck analysis and what's what's come of it, I want to point out there are many experiments that are seeking to measure the uh, cosmic microwave background's polarization. In particular, looking for uh, effects due to primordial perturbations, whether they be uh, gravitational waves or even density perturbations, and using it as a probe of all the physics in the intervening universe and perhaps earlier prior to the, uh, the epoch of decoupling. 
But uh, some of them are shown here. I think I got a fairly exhaustive list. But the um, the the comments I asked Ichiro Komatsu and uh, to come on this uh, podcast with us, uh, but he wanted to wait until some of these uh, experiments return data. I, I didn't have the heart to break it to him that you know many of these are not observing and won't be observing for many years uh, <laughs> due to maybe he, knew that. <laughs> <laughs> maybe he did, but. Um, but let's get back to the original uh, the original claim, which is that this this effect of this causing fire fringence effect was measured with this extremely high uh, uh, level of confidence, ninety nine point two percent confidence. What does that mean when you when you hear such a number? How should we think about the interpretation? I mean, if I had a ninety nine point two percent chance of dying in a plane crash the next commercial airline I took, I would not get on that plane. Uh, what what do you think about this uh, this type of uh, confidence level? How do you enjoy yeah, it? To be very uh, clear, just so no one misunderstands, I think this result is probably going to go away. I, I think it's probably wrong if I were to bet right now, despite them saying it's a 0.2% of it going away, right? And that's because, you know, it, this confidence level, 998 or whatever it is, doesn't mean there's a 99.8% chance this is right. What it means is that if you did something like this, over and over again many, many times, you should not get a signal this large except for 0.2% of the time, okay? So the signal should be smaller. But that fact uh, hides a number of other facts. Number one, you're looking for lots of different things, right? So you're actually doing a lot of different things and you're gonna get unlikely things. Someone wins the lottery, even though it's unlikely that you're gonna win the lottery. Uh, number two, you get more excited when you see a result than when you just see what exactly what you expected, so you're more likely to write a paper about it. Uh, number three, as you've already indicated, there are systematic effects. So there are effects that are not exactly uh, random numbers. The, there can be hidden effects that push all of your errors in the same direction, and that can trick you into, into seeing something. Uh, and number four, most importantly, this would be such a big deal that you should be super duper cautious about it, no matter what, okay? So I think that it's very interesting, very intriguing that they claim that there's some evidence here. The confidence level, even at 99.8, you want it to be way higher than that, just as a numerical fact. And also you want it to be verified by independent groups, not just by one telescope, because any one telescope can have a secret little mistake in it. Mm -hmm. uh, so it's not something that's gonna be cleared up in the next couple of weeks. And so uh, that's yeah, that's very uh, that's very good to hear that <clears throat> take from you. We have a question from Stuart Volkow, who's the producer of the Into the Impossible podcast. He's taking advantage of his proximity to me. Uh, Stuart's asking, "What is Sean looking forward to that may come out of observations from the next generation instruments coming online, like Vera Rubin Observatory, obviously Simon's Observatory? Are there uh, other probes that could get at this effect? Uh, you, you mentioned 130 radio galaxies back in 1990. Well, how many are there now? Are there other ways to get at cosmic biorefringence besides the CMB? Yeah, well, in fact, the CMB was not even something we thought of. If you think about 1990, it's hard, you know, some of your viewers, I'm sure, were not born yeah. in 1990. It's pre COVID. Uh, that makes me very sad, but it's probably true. Um, we hadn't discovered the anisotropies in the cosmic microwave background in 1990. We knew that they were there. We knew that we had uh, satellites in the sky that were going to look for them and hopefully find them. But we hadn't, I mean, the whole thing had been under-theorized in some sense, you know. Um, I'm sure Jim Peebles knew all of it. <laughs> but the community as a whole was, was not nearly as informed about the meaningfulness of CMB anisotropies as they, as they could have been. And so when George and Roman and I did it, we used radio galaxies, and that was more than good enough to show that the effect is gonna be small if it's there at all. When I wrote my paper about quintessence, there, you know, unlike the, my paper with George and Roman where we just made something up, you know, no good reason for it to be there. Uh, you can make up whatever size effect you want, and we put a, an upper limit on it. With the quintessence stuff, there is a target there's a natural size for that effect to be. And I was tickled to see it was smaller than the current limits, but big enough to potentially be observable. That's why I got very excited about that particular effect. Um, but these days, you know, we do, as you say, look at the CMB to do it. Um, people soon figured out that was a, a, something you could do. It's a more subtle analysis because you have to 
you know, there's not like it's not like a radio galaxy which does look like a stick in the sky, right? You know, the CMB is is a more complicated beast. Um, but also, you know, if you want to know what else I'm interested in, we all know there's something called the Hubble tension. Um, there's this purported disagreement between cosmological parameters as measured by the CMB with the Planck satellite, WMAP, etc., and the expansion rate of the universe as measured in our local neighborhood, the Hubble constant, okay? One of the possible explanations, th this tension between these different measurements is tricky because unlike the acceleration of the universe that we discovered in 1998, there's no obvious explanation. There's no obvious theory that would easily fit this particular discrepancy. So you kind of have to bend over backwards a little bit and you worry about it. The, the joke that theorists say is that it's, it's an experimental result that has not yet been confirmed by theory. <laughs> and and uh, I think, I think uh, who, who said, um, uh, Eddington said, never believe an experiment until it's confirmed yeah. by theory. <laughs> there you go. So, but nevertheless, there are theories. People, people write down theories. Uh, you know, my, my friend and colleague, uh, Mark Kamienkowski, had a theory, one of many theories to propose to, to get rid of the Hubble tension, which is dark energy, but not now. An early period of dark energy before recombination, before the microwave background was formed. And that could also be a kind of dark energy that gives rise to birefringence in the cosmic microwave background. So even if we see the, the birefringence there, it's not necessarily the quintessence that I was talking about. It could be something more exotic. And so I don't have a target to shoot for in future experiments so much as I have a biggish smorgasbord of things I want to understand better. Parity violation, uh, tensor modes with gravitational waves, reconciling the Hubble tension, all these things are potential discovery vectors. And so we need to push forward on all of them. Yeah, that brings up, you know, kind of an allied point from an experimentalist point of view. Uh, uh, in addition to the many flowers that will hopefully bloom, when we go to measure the primordial B modes, we get limits on this type of biofringence for free. We get limits on things like axions, which I want to conclude our conversation, just getting your take on that. But the other thing that we get that we know exists is uh, are called primordial magnetic fields. In other words, we know that primordial, uh, we know that magnetic fields exist in all bound clusters of objects. There's a cluster that's uh, uh, 10 megaparsecs across. It has a magnetic field that's been measured, but we don't have yet a measurement at truly cosmological distances that are not gravitationally collapsed. And so the theory is that some early time in the universe, there could have been a seed field, perhaps a relic of a phase transition, et cetera, but we have a lower limit uh, and we have upper limits. And so what we try to do as experimentalists is converge the upper limit to the lower limit and hopefully result in a detection. And so that I see is a low risk. I see looking for, you know, if you were just building an experiment and your, and your proposal was to look for cosmic biofringence only, that probably shouldn't be funded. But if you can get all this other cool stuff, the primordial perturbations from inflation, primordial magnetic fields, limits on evolution of dark energy, Etc. Uh, I think it's 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 uh, becomes uh, very fruitful to pursue such things where you have guaranteed results in some sense. Uh, similar with neutrino masses, and and one of the uh, comments is a question about dark matter, which I always say, neutrinos are the only form of dark matter we know exists uh, <laughs> that have mass and and actually uh, don't interact other than weakly and gravitationally. So a person by the name of Outsmoked is asking, hi, Sean, I wonder why isn't dark matter mentioned in the formation of supermassive black holes? Uh, if we know that dark matter uh, warps space, bends space, wouldn't it end up in a black hole in the end? So d does dark matter, would dark matter be be uh, uh, part of a, of a black hole? Well, it might very well um, have something to do with it, but there's a good reason why we think that ordinary matter, even though there's much less ordinary matter than dark matter, uh, is has an easier time forming black holes than dark matter does, namely that ordinary matter can stick together. So you get a bunch of ordinary matter, hydrogen atoms or whatever, and they run into each other and they stick. You make a shockwave or a pancake or a bunch of stars or a black hole or whatever, because ordinary matter dissipates. It gives off light and heat. It interacts electromagnetically. And so there's all these extra forces over and above gravity that allow ordinary matter to condense into very dense objects and eventually form black holes. Whereas dark matter, as we know this from uh, the bullet cluster and other observations, you send two clouds of dark matter together, they just go right through each other. 
So there might be a lot of mass in them, but it's not high density mass. To squeeze the dark matter into a really tiny uh, region of space is really, really hard. It just tends to go right through your fingers. Mm. And another t candidate for uh, for the dark matter in some extent is the axion. I wonder, can you say something about axions? That was coined a term coined by Frank Wilczek, who's an upcoming guest on the podcast, uh, and for his new book coming out early next year. Uh, I wonder, can you say something about that, and and how is it an allied, or is it an allied uh, phenomenon uh, related to the Carroll field and Jacquive method mechanism? Yeah, the axion is a very promising dark matter candidate. Uh, it's becoming more and more promising every day, not because of anything that axions are doing, but because their biggest competitor are something called weakly interacting massive particles, which we put a lot of effort into detecting and haven't detected yet. Okay, We could have detected weakly interacting massive particles yet. We haven't. We haven't yet crossed the threshold where we ruled them out by any means, but every time we could have detected it and we don't, their probability goes down and the probability of everything else goes up a little bit, right? So the axions are more popular now than they used to be. And like the quintessence that we talked about, the stuff that gives rise to birefringence, the axion is what we call a pseudo-scalar field. If you do this parity transformation, take the axion and hold it up to a mirror, it turns into opposite of what it was in some, in some well, in some sense it's going to remain vague for this uh, discussion, but it's actually mathematically very well defined. And what that means is axions interact with electromagnetism in exactly the same way as this quintessence field would interact. The difference is the quintessence field very, very slowly rolls down its potential so that over cosmological time, a photon builds up a polarization rotation that eventually we can observe, whereas an axion very rapidly oscillates back and forth. So there's no net effect whatsoever on um, the polarization. There's particle physics effects. You can try to actually shoot a magnetic field or a shoot a photon through a magnetic field and have it turn into an axion or vice versa, turn on a magnetic field, let axions go through it and look for photons being produced. Um, but so it's a family cousin, but not exactly the same effect. Mm. Very good. Uh, I can't uh, resist just asking you your thoughts on the recent awarding of the Nobel Prize to uh, Sir Roger Penrose, to Andrea Ghez, and to Reinhard Gensel. Uh, what did you make of it? How do you react to it? It's a, sort of a unique prize in a sense, uh, going to, especially the component that went to, to Sir Roger. And then the observation, and notice it didn't say for a black hole discovery, did it? So what was your reaction to that, uh, to that Nobel Prize? I mean, I think it's good Nobel Prize because it's good science that is being rewarded. I, I don't really follow carefully enough what exactly the citation was or so forth, but we've all seen these movies that they made of stars zipping around to some very massive, very dark object at the center of our galaxy. Um, and I think this is one of those things that crept up on us, right? You know, black holes have been understood since the 60s. Uh, we've had some evidence for them since the 70s. The evidence got a lot better when uh, uh, Gaze and Genzel did their uh, observations near the center of the galaxy. The, uh, the evidence got even better when LIGO found gravitational waves from black holes, but LIGO already won the Nobel Prize, okay, so that's in there. So I think what happened was, you know, there was sort of a, it wasn't like a big phase transition so much as a gradual creeping up to the point where people said, well, we have enough evidence to say that yes, black holes really exist, and here are these people who have observed them, they win the Nobel Prize. And then someone in the back of the room can say something like, well, that's the experiment, what about the theoretical side of things? And someone says, well, I guess, you know, probably the best work theoretically on black holes was Hawking and Penrose back in the 1960s, and Hawking is no longer with us, <laughs> Penrose still is, uh, so that's a very deserving Nobel Prize, although I was surprised that he got it. I would not have picked that. Yeah, it was uh, it was interesting. I mean, I think he's he's done a lot. He also has his own alternative cosmological models, which are sure. nothing short of controversial. Uh, but uh, but, yeah, it was certainly gratifying to see uh, the recognition of this wonderful of this wonderful award and and uh, and just the excitement that it brings to astronomy winning 
racking up all this attention and, and accolades. Um, well, Sean, uh, we've come to the end of the of the hour. I want to uh, thank you so much uh, and also refer people to uh, to your YouTube channel, which uh, is easily accessed, or your Preposterous Universe blog, uh, your many books, uh, one of which has been shown this whole time, Something Deeply Hidden, a uh, phenomenal book. I have an interview with Sean about that from back in December 2019, uh, BC, before COVID. And, uh, and I want to thank you for everything you do, uh, both personally that you have helped me, the way that you provide a role model for, for physicists and how to react and act with integrity as a scientist, your outreach, your communication skills, and uh, your, your, your ability to eat almost any type of hot sauce, no matter what the Scoville rated. <laughs> Never been invited on the hot ones. You know, that's, that's a future goal for me. I'll I'm see what sure I can do. All right, yeah. Sean, be well. Say hi to Jennifer for us, and uh, we wish you the best, and hopefully we'll have you back when these results are confirmed, if not sooner. I'll be too important. I won't come on your podcast anymore. But <laughs> well, that hot sauce. I'll remember the day. All Bye, right. Sean. Thanks. Thank Bye. you very much. Bye, everybody. Thank you so Take much care. for Bye. joining us on the Into the Impossible podcast, the special uh, Sean Carroll edition. You can find a few different things I've done with Sean in the past. Find his blog. Find him on Twitter. And, uh, and you won't be disappointed. Uh, and uh, especially uh, thanks to, to uh, the producer of the show, Stuart Volkow, for helping arrange it and uh, putting it together. That's all for now. Stay tuned for more upcoming interesting, exciting analysis and news and interviews in the coming weeks with, as I said, Frank Wilczek, Barry Barish, and many other scientists. Uh, and I do want to put a plug out uh, for a live stream I'm going to be doing with Adam Reese, Wendy Friedman, Jan 11, and uh, and I'm forgetting who else. There's oh Professor Sarah Seeger of the uh, of uh, MIT. We're doing a live stream to commemorate the 100th anniversary of the great debates in astronomy, which took place in 1920, the famous Curtis Shapley debate. That the that uh, live stream will be on the evening of November 10th, and we will do it uh, in conjunction with the Wyoming Stargazing Association which is an organization that I'm involved with that has access to half meter diameter sized telescopes. We'll be reviewing some of the Hubble Space Telescope's greatest hits uh, because it's also the Hubble Telescope's 30th anniversary, 30th birthday. These are just uh, incredible uh, the milestones to reach, both in our understanding of the size, the scale, the scope of our universe, in the case of the Curtis-Shapley debate, and also in the context of the Hubble telescope celebrating its anniversary. So who better to share it with than a bunch of friends looking at telescopes live on the air in the evening of November 10th. So stay tuned. Please subscribe to this channel uh, and subscribe to the podcast version, the Into the Impossible podcast on Apple iTunes or Google Play. Please leave ratings and so forth. That's how we get more attention so we can get great guests like Sean on such short notice. Uh, it's really such a treat. And the many, many luminous intellects that we've had on. Uh, just this past week, we had Emily Levesque, professor of, uh, of astronomy at the University of Washington. And in the next couple of weeks, we're going to have this stellar, outstanding cast of characters. Uh, so please do subscribe uh, to the Into the Impossible uh, podcast, to this YouTube channel. Leave a like, leave a notification. I don't know if you can leave a notification. Anyway, this has been a blast for me. Thanks to Sean. Thanks to all of you out there for your awesome questions. And uh, please subscribe to my newsletter so you'll get the, be the first to know whenever I do a live stream like this. Signing off, I am your fearful host in this time of pandemic podcast, Professor Brian Keating, University of California, San Diego. Have an awesome weekend, everybody.